the end of August. That means effectively the end of summer. College students back on campus and K through 12 students are heading to big box retailers to look for those school supplies, and school clothes. I wonder if students still use school supplies such as pencils and notebooks and folders and such. Heck, do they even use textbooks anymore? I'm not sure. Or is it all sort of iPad and laptop based these days? along with those smart boards in the classroom instead of the old chalk and erasers. You know, who's listening that is old enough to remember covering your school books in grade school with brown paper shopping bags to protect them through the year so they could be used again next year by another student? I remember that. You know, moms were particularly adept at the skill of wrapping a textbook with grocery bags and tape. Anyway, with summer fading fast and fall coming up, it brings to me thoughts of basketball season. There's a coaching great who has eluded a far middle dedication for far too long, a true legend in NBA lore, and his first name was Arnold, but no one called him that when growing up as a Jewish kid in Brooklyn. Everybody knew him as Red because of his hair and his fiery temper, as in Red Auerbach, the most accomplished pro basketball coach and executive in the history of the game, both statistically as well as with respect to impact. And that's no offense to Phil Jackson but no one has a resume of achievement that stacks up the Red Auerbach. And after he was done coaching, he was head of the front office of the Celtics and helped drive another slew of accomplishments and championships. But as a coach, Auerbach set a then-NBA record with 938 wins, along with nine championships, and both records have been surpassed since. Popovich holds the wins mark currently, and Phil Jackson holds two more titles than Auerbach as a coach. But Auerbach wasn't through after he stopped coaching courtside at Boston Garden. Far from it. He retired from coaching in 1966 and then served as president and front office executive of the Celtics until his death. As general manager and team president of the Celtics, he won an additional seven NBA titles for a grand total of 16. 16 titles as coach and executive in a span of 29 years. That's the most of any individual in NBA history. And he's arguably the most successful pro sports coach and executive in the history of pro sports. And it wasn't just his winning and tenure that set him apart. Auerbach was a true pioneer of modern basketball, making basketball game to be won by a tightly woven team approach. The idea of the sixth man took root with Red. Just think of our prior far middle dedication that we had with John Havlicek, who became the ultimate epitome of the sixth man. And Red won by assenuating defense. He was also one of the first to use the fast break, first seeing its value even before he became a head coach. Auerbach was in many ways also serving as the NBA's version of Branch Rickey by breaking down the NBA color barrier. He drafted the first African-American NBA player, who was Chuck Cooper, back in 1950. And by the way, Cooper played college ball at one of my alma maters, Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. And Red then made history again with the first African-American starting five. That occurred in 1964. And as front office executive, he hired his ex-player, the one and only, the legendary, the great Bill Russell, as the first African-American head coach in all of North American sports in 1966. Now, Red was not what you would consider a go-along-to-get-along type of a guy. He could be abrasive and he could be outspoken. Many of the greats are. And he could gloat. He would always, of course, fire up that victory cigar when a Celtics win was at hand. There's a reason why the NBA Coach of the Year Award is named the Red Auerbach Trophy. 
Think of the players he developed and helped bring along the way. You've got Kuzi, Russell, Havlicek, Bird, McHale, Cowan, Sam Jones, Parrish, Tommy Heinsohn. The list and the names just go on and on. Auerbach is memorialized in the Boston Garden Rafters with a number two banner. Now, why number two? That number followed Celtics founder Walter Brown's symbolic number one, as Auerbach was second only to Brown as the most important person in team history, and that's for one of the most iconic teams in all of sports. It can't be almost 120 episodes into far middle history and not have a dedication bagged for Red Auerbach. Choosing Red Auerbach and his role with the Celtics brings to mind the Keller Green. Green fits well with the overall theme of episode 119, which we can label as greenflation, as in the inflation that we experience today being caused at the root by so-called and self-described, although far from it, green energy policies, mandates, subsidies, and forced transitions. And let's first start by establishing that inflation is a real, present, and persisting problem across North America and the EU. Consider the spread between worker wage change and inflation. If wage change tracks above inflation, that's good. And if inflation trends above wage change, that means that American workers are losing value and are suffering quality of life degradation. During the Trump administration, change in worker wages was consistently above inflation across the four years. Maybe the single biggest achievement of his tenure, one could argue. But once the Biden administration took office, the two metrics quickly flipped to where inflation is now far outpacing worker wage change. Now, why the flip in these metrics? There are many contributors, but two stand out above all the others. One is a slew of policies, some pandemic-related and others not pandemic-related, that punishes and penalizes work and labor participation. Now, we've covered this topic in past episodes, and it is a simple dynamic. You constrict labor supply and available workers, and that creates bottlenecks and stokes subsequent inflation. Less people doing in the private sector and more people dependent on government, that's going to spell trouble for efficiency and inflation. But waning worker and labor participation in the real economy It's not the largest contributor to inflation exceeding worker wage change during the tenure of President Biden. Now, the single biggest contributor is far and away climate change policies and the forced energy transition imposed upon the real economy by the administrative state and the whole of government. I posited many times that these climate policies were never about atmospheric CO2 or future global temperatures, and instead those are used as convenient justification to pursue the true aims of climate policies, which is to manufacture and impose scarcity. Energy scarcity, which then transmits to overall economic scarcity and supply scarcity of everything because everything needs energy as the fundamental input or feedstock. Think about it. What does government today tell us from the president to the cabinet to the regulators that they want to tame inflation? But how does one do that if within the executive branch of the federal government? Simple. You implement policies to drive down energy costs and increase supply. Yet this administration has done its best to achieve the opposite. Heck, just listen to the president's own words. Quote, I want you to look in my eyes. I guarantee, I guarantee we're going to end fossil fuel. End quote. Think of the whole of government's efforts when it comes to energy policy of late. 
reducing access to public land for domestic energy development, setting emission standards that effectively outlaw oil, natural gas, and coal, mandating EVs and phasing out gas-powered cars by regulation, attacking appliances powered by domestic energy, and starving the domestic energy industry of capital access under a slew of SEC and ESG rules and regulations. The aim of the current administration is not to grow supply and tame inflation. It's the opposite, to constrict supply and stoke inflation under cover of the green label, thus greenflation. Now, if the premise that I am suggesting is going to be valid, there should be plenty of data points and examples of greenflation's handiwork at play. Indeed, such data points are everywhere one looks these days, and we'll start connecting to specific illustrations of contributors to greenflation. The most symbolic occurred on President Biden's inauguration day when he immediately canceled the Keystone XL pipeline, which I remind you was a legally permitted project moving domestic energy from point A to point B to improve supply and increase efficiency. That single move on the first day of the Biden presidency set the tone for all to hear and see, that this government would do all it could to disrupt and upend and ruin and stifle the ability of the domestic energy industry to deliver supply, abundance, and security. In just one day and with one pipeline, Greenflation's roots were off and running. But realize the federal government's energy and climate policies are not just aiming to disrupt the efficient, but that they also are designed to mandate the inefficient and then potentially disrupt that activity as well. Case in point is our next connection, which jumps from oil and Keystone XL pipeline to cobalt and a planned mine in Idaho. Now, the global cobalt market and supply chain is dominated by China. And without cobalt, you don't have everything from smartphones to EVs. The forced energy transition surely fails without that necessary input. So in comes an Australian developer for what would be the first domestic U.S. cobalt mine in rural Idaho. And early on, the developer and mine project received all the praise and accolades you would imagine from this administration. You know the talking points by now, how this is the start of Made in America for the energy transition and such. But now the developer is putting the Idaho project on hold and has laid off hundreds of workers just before the mine was set to start producing. Why? Because it needs around $18 a pound for cobalt to make the mine economic, and cobalt isn't selling at that level, which means if you wish America to play any type of serious role in cobalt supply, the price for cobalt will need to jump significantly and stay there for an extensive period of time. That's the only way supply will be brought online. And if the price jumps to, say, north of $20 per pound for cobalt, guess what that does to the price of EVs and all the other whiz-bang energy transition portfolio? Their price and costs go way up as well. And thus, so does the price of electricity and transportation. And thus, so does the price of everything else a consumer or business uses. That's greenflation in action. Now, one final funny note on this Idaho mine being developed by the Australian entity. The company CEO said the project needed higher prices to be economic and that using his words, were not a public policy instrument. Oh, I beg to differ. Uh, that type of project is absolutely nothing more than a public policy instrument. If the policies of energy and climate that the left has instituted were suddenly vaporized, the Idaho mine would never even be on the drawing board. Policy makes the inefficient economic, 
and it's another fundamental tenant of greenflation. Now, speaking of electric vehicles, let's connect to what's going on with Ford and how it feeds greenflation. Ford's losing billions of dollars in its EV business unit, despite the lavish subsidy and protected markets from government under various climate regulations and policies. $3 billion it lost in last year alone. In fact, this year, Ford posted operating losses of 100 plus percent with its EV effort, meaning it's losing more per EV than it's selling the EV for. That's an amazing and an ignoble achievement for a business. The only way for Ford to make money on EVs is for the price of EVs to go up and to force consumers to buy them, which means the supply of gasoline-powered vehicles must go down. You see, restrict supply of the efficient and force the choice of the inefficient and raise its price. Greenflation 101. And the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, provides a $7,500 tax credit to consumers who buy EVs, which adds to the national deficit and debt, which then fuels inflation more and forces the central bank to raise rates, making the government deficits and debt load worse and higher. Just about all of the examples we are and will discuss this episode of greenflation have that subsequent detriment. They add to government deficit and debt, making inflation worse, leading to increased interest rates, which compound the problem. And by the way, I spoke earlier about how worker wage change is not keeping pace with inflation because of all these examples. Well, even the unions, and particularly the United Auto Workers, is seen at the same way. The UAW recently said this about big automakers, that they are, and using their words, extremely profitable, whether they're selling combustion engines or EVs. Yet the workers get a smaller and smaller piece of the pie. Why is Joe Biden's administration facilitating this corporate greed with taxpayer money? That's from the UAW. And the uh, the UAW also stated recently that the switch to electric engine jobs, battery production, and other EV manufacturing cannot become a race to the bottom. And government is actively funding the race to the bottom with billions in public money. Constant listeners, the UAW needs to understand these policies were never about CO2 or the middle class or CO2 or climate. They were about creating scarcity and increasing cost or greenflation. Hey, as bad as EVs and canceled pipelines might be, it can get worse when it comes to the magnitude of value destruction. Let's consider and connect to an interesting topic, the hidden costs of wind and solar infrastructure on a grid. Much of that cost is found in having to install and run new transmission lines to every wind turbine and solar farm that is plopped down. And that just adds to the already too high costs of wind and solar. But you might not realize how much cost all that new transmission infrastructure might add to the backs of ratepayers and electricity users. Let's talk first from the perspective of relative cost. Transmission costs of wind and solar are typically two to three times more than the transmission costs for natural gas and nuke power. Once again, wind and solar betray their inherent inefficiencies. And now let's talk from the perspective of absolute cost. Princeton did a study that concluded that to get a grid that is supposedly zero carbon by 2050 is going to require $2.4 trillion for just new transmission. That's trillion with a T. Transmission lines across America would need to triple to be able to deliver such a grid. Now, here's where it gets even more interesting. As you know, some states, they are all in 
when it comes to this mirage of a grid comprised solely of wind and solar, while other states are saying no thank you. So think of New York and West Virginia as examples of the two ends of the spectrum. And when a state run by the left wants to dive headfirst into wind and solar, because in large part of this high cost of transmission spend that will be needed, its residents are going to get penalized and hammered financially when the cost of electricity goes through the residential or commercial or industrial roof. The state that shuns the fallacy of a renewable grid would be economically advantaged. So here comes your friendly left-leaning politician and bureaucrat who are looking to even the playing field by spreading the pain and suffering all around. Leaders of the left in Congress are lobbying to adopt regulations through entities like the FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, to stick the astute state that shunned the forced energy transition with a large part of the bill that the states jumping head first into the energy crisis have created. So what's being proposed technically is what Senator Schumer from New York references as a strong transmission planning and cost allocation rule. Now, what in the world is that? That's a nice way of saying that a state such as West Virginia is going to have to pay for all that new transmission cost from New York or New Jersey in their wind and solar adventures to basically make all states inefficient and uneconomic, not just the states full enough to rely on wind and solar for grid performance. So when New Jersey says it mandates its grid to be 100% clean by 2035, West Virginians will have to foot the bill. Yes, transmission spend levels measured in the multi-trillions of dollars that are heaped upon taxpayers and consumers by states led by the left. And now increasingly, where those costs will be shouldered by all taxpayers and all residents and all consumers of all the states as the whole of government looks to do a regulatory end around from Congress and voters with this push on a new FERC rule. The net result, higher power costs, less reliability of the grid, and thus less electricity supply for everybody. That's greenflation in action, constant listeners. And greenflation is not just being manufactured in the power grid or with EVs. Allow me to provide you an example with our next connection. It's a spat between two neighbor states who trend left. you got New York against New Jersey in this instance. New York City, like many big urban areas these days, including Boston, wants to implement the latest fad in the greenflation playbook, which is traffic congestion pricing. This is how it works. Take a major city with traffic like New York and Manhattan, then install bus lanes to snarl traffic, then bike lanes to snarl the car and delivery van even more, then pedestrian-only streets, and more stoplights and one-way streets. Make driving effectively a living nightmare by, again, restricting access and cutting efficiency. The urban planner is basically manufactured congestion. Then once the congestion is manufactured, a bureaucrat and central planner, well, now they've got the cover of instituting new rules and regimes on the private sector to reduce the very congestion they created. Again, it's a hallmark of the left. Create a problem purposely upon the private sector and then use that created problem to justify more power and control over the private sector. It's simple but effective time and again. So what New York City desires to do is institute congestion pricing to private sector drivers in the form of more tolls. The Big Apple got approval to do so from a willing Biden administration recently. 
And New Jersey's governor, that proponent, by the way, of a 100% so-called clean energy grid by 2035, he's flipping out. He filed a lawsuit against New York and the Federal Highway Administration over the congestion tolling plan. And he says the tolls penalize private drivers from New Jersey coming into Manhattan, who, by the way, already pay $17 to go through the Lincoln or Holland Tunnel. $17. The uh, congestion toll is expected to add another $23 during rush hour to the driver's pain. Ouch. Now, an important facet of this scheme is to understand what the money from all this congestion tolling will go toward. It will be poured into the already failed and miserable New York public transit system. The administrative state creating congestion, then using congestion to tax private drivers to then take that money and pour into government inefficient endeavors like public transit. And it is designed to punish the private driver One of the goals of the program is to reduce private sector traffic by 20% in Manhattan. And it goes without saying that the twin goal would be to force those would-be drivers to lose their personal freedom and have to instead take inferior public transportation, which takes longer and it hurts productivity, which creates higher cost and scarcity. That's what we call greenflation. We could go on with many more examples of greenflation in action. Maybe another episode of The Far Middle to further explore. It's just something to keep in the back of your head for future reference. But hopefully now you see how all these examples drive toward a state policy of greenflation, premeditated outcomes by clinical design. Some experts refer to such a state or government as the project state, or sometimes the activist state. And America, interestingly, was founded and thrived on the opposite approach to the state Uh, which is having government stay out of personal lives and allowing the free market to function. And it worked really well for 200 years. But there's another view out there, typically embraced by the left, where the state is there to control and maneuver all activity under guise of knowing what's best for you and me and to pursue social aims and the common good. Think about the examples of those project state approaches throughout history and the problems that they clung to as justification and how they ultimately turned out. You had Hitler in Germany with a nationalistic approach to all things in culture, science, and policy, which became a blueprint for tragedy to right the wrongs of World War I as justification. FDR had the New Deal that took the concept of the welfare state to a new permanent high that we've only added to over the past 80 years. Justification was to solve the Great Depression. You had Stalin with his reign in the USSR, where the state exerted severe control across the masses while killing tens of millions of its citizens through famine and gulags, all to instill equality of suffering, I suppose. Mussolini in Italy, with his public works and empire building, justification to restore the glory of the Roman Empire, ended badly to put it mildly. LBJ had his war on poverty, that uh, has left the nation saddled with debt in big government and dependency on the state. Justification to eradicate poverty itself. Every time you see a dictator in Africa or Latin America, it's the same thing at play. Some injustice or some slight that is used to exert control of the state through either a bureaucracy or a strongman. Well, today the West is applying the same playbook of all these failed endeavors in history. And this time, the crisis is weather or climate, 
atmospheric CO2 in the distant future. But the solution and the promise are the same old, same old, from Mussolini to Stalin to LBJ. Cede your freedom and your rights to the state and let the state run things for you. And you and the planet and humanity will be saved. There is no choice but to go along and dutifully comply. It's a code red, for goodness sake, don't you know that? And that's the way all these policies get promoted and sold. But that's not why the state and the left insists upon them. The true objective is creating scarcity and increasing costs so that the individual loses freedom of choice, becomes dependent on a state, and thus will become obedient to the state. Because there is an underlying belief by those in power that the state can and thus should shape our world. Greenflation, ladies and gentlemen, it is a real thing, I assure you. Being promoted by a massive public relations campaign to sway those hearts and minds across all segments of society. Just look at uh, how summer weather these days is now a sign of Armageddon. So it's getting really hot and humid in Houston during summer, and that's news. Or 100 plus degree temperatures in Phoenix in the dead of summer during a heat wave is now a sign of the apocalypse. Please. But summer heat waves and commandeering the normal to package as the abnormal so the left can manufacture greenflation connects us actually and interestingly to a movie that was first released in 1954 on September 1st, which is two days after our first airing of this episode. It's one of the best efforts from my favorite director of all time, a true genius. Alfred Hitchcock was the director and the movie was Rear Window starring Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly, along, I might add, with a supporting role by a younger Raymond Burr. Rear Window is considered by many critics to be one of Hitchcock's best. As I said, I I agree with that. In fact, it should be considered as one of the greatest films ever. It received four Academy Award nominations, and it's in the United States National Film Registry, for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Well-deserved. It's a tense thriller plot with an underlying theme of voyeurism throughout. It takes place during a heat wave in New York City, thus the connection to what we've been talking about on this episode. And while recuperating from a broken leg, the lead character, who is a professional photographer, played by Jimmy Stewart, is confined to a wheelchair in his apartment in Greenwich Village. His rear apartment window looks out onto a courtyard of other apartments. During an intense uh, heat wave that had been occurring, as I said, he watches his neighbors who keep their windows open to stay cool from the heat. And each neighbor has their own side story and gets presented in really interesting and intriguing ways by Hitchcock. Stewart's girlfriend, played by Grace Kelly, uh, works alongside him when they both begin to suspect some foul play is going on within the apartment complex that might involve a murder based on what they're observing. The plot heats up and takes off from there. I'm not going to ruin it for you if you haven't seen the film. And if you haven't, you got to go watch it this week. What a piece of cinema by the master director at his peak powers. Now, Hitchcock once quipped that there is no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. That's true for Rear Window's suspense. And I hope this episode of The Far Middle ended with a bang as well. And I really hope that you'll be waiting in anticipation of next week's episode and whatever bang may accompany it.